Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 207. Uh, We are recording this live on May 27th, 2021. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined across the internet waves by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Across the waves themselves. How are you, Nick? Hey, Blake. I am fantastic. Uh, normally we banter, but now we're doing some programming notes. I got to jump into some things because we got some exciting announcements here today. At the top of the show, I want to make sure everyone hears them. Um, this is a big announcement, Blake. Uh, this is something a that big we've one? been... Yeah, it's a big one. We've been cooking this up for a while now. Um, and we are proud to announce that we have opened up the Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. Um, so it's a basically what it is sounds like it's a lab. Um, if if you're interested in getting involved with the show, uh, it's an opportunity to do that. If you're a grad student looking for more experience, if you're an undergrad looking for experience, um, students looking for that real world experience. We're uh, incubating a bunch of different uh, ideas here, um, and you know the the main focus here is to uh, make human factors accessible and communicate it in different ways. But yeah, it's a great opportunity for anyone looking to get involved. Um, if you're an academic looking to share your work, reach out to us. There's probably an opportunity here for you. Designers who want to work on your portfolio certainly can do that with us. Uh, if you do want to get involved, please get in touch with us. Uh, we can work to, together to figure out something that might be a good fit for you. Uh, and your skill set, you know, we're, uh, we're, we have blog articles that you can write. You can write custom code for our website, um, conduct interviews with people in the field, uh, produce YouTube content, stream human factors related content on Twitch. That's something you can do. Contribute to our Patreon exclusive content uh, or come up with your own ideas. There's a bunch of stuff that you can do to help out the show. Um, and so we are formalizing that in uh, the Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. Um you know, like I said, contact us. There's a form on the website uh, that you can get to us. You can reach us at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. Uh, get to our website. You can leave a voicemail there. There's a bunch of ways that you can get to us. Reach out to us on social media, whatever it is. Um, with that said, though, uh, I do want to welcome the newest addition to the Human Factors Cast team, uh, Katie Sabo. She's uh, Maybe she's watching tonight. I don't know. Um, Katie is actually joining us. Uh, as a digital media production research assistant. So, um, you know, with that, she did publish her first article on our blog yesterday, giving a bit more detail on the cave syndrome that we discussed on last week's show. So go check it out. It's a great piece. Uh, Gets more into the nitty gritty than even Aaron and I did on the show. Um, So it's a great companion piece to the podcast if you're looking for that. I'll put a link to that in uh, the show notes. Um, Yeah, uh, what do you think about the Digital Media Lab, Blake? Oh, that's going to be so much fun. I'm just looking forward to getting a lot more people involved in various aspects in the podcast and just, you know, getting ideas out there. But I mean, your goal with this show has always been making human factors much more accessible, and I think this is like one of the giant leaps forward for what the podcast can do. So this is really cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh another kind of less pressing programming note, my office hours are going to change uh from 11 a.m. Pacific on Tuesdays to 1 p.m. Pacific on Tuesdays. Um, Small change. Um, Yeah, with that, um, I think it's time for Human Factors News. (laughs) 
Yes, that's right. It is Human Factors News. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to talk about human factors. This could be anything related to the field, as long as it's uh, medical, privacy, security, robotics, artificial intelligence. We got some VR in there this week. I'm really excited. Um, you name it. Uh, it's uh, As long as it relates to the field of human factors, it's fair game for Blake and I to sit here and talk about. Blake, what do we have up first this week? Up first this week, so how virtual reality can warp your sense of time. So Grayson Mullen, a cognitive scientist at UC Santa Cruz, wanted to know how virtual reality's effect on a game player's sense of time could differ from those of conventional monitors. So he and other co- other of his colleagues designed a maze game that could be played in both formats, so both in VR and through conventional monitors. Participants in this study that they conducted would play both conventional and virtual reality formats, with researchers, of course, randomizing which version each game student played or each participant played and participants were then asked while playing the game whether they felt like five minutes had passed since there were actually no clocks in the game each person had to estimate this time based on their own perceptions while they were playing the game so the study found that participants who played the virtual reality version of this maze game uh, played an average of about 72 seconds longer uh, than before they actually realized five minutes had passed or claimed that five minutes had passed compared to students who had done it on a conventional monitor. In other words, about 30% more of the time they realized they were actually in virtual reality than actual time had passed. So compared to your conventional format where you're kind of thinking that time is just passing a little bit slower. So this effect where time goes faster than you think is called time compression and time compression being observed amongst virtual reality it amongst players in virtual reality is much more than you see in conventional gameplay. So Nick, it's been a long time since we've talked about anything VR, but uh, initial thoughts, what are you kind of thinking here? Yeah, it's obvious to me. Um, and I think it's pretty much obvious to anyone who spent any yeah. extended period of time in virtual reality. Um, time gets away from you. And uh, I mean, we can talk about some specifics here, but I think just my general thoughts, time gets away from you. And I think that's largely because you have no perception of the outside world. You're not looking at things <clears throat> that are changing, like the shadows slowly changing from day to night uh, outside your window or, um, you know, the ambient light in your apartment or home that give you those cues as to what time it is or how much time has actually passed. So, just off the top of my head, yes, I, this makes sense to me. Um, what do you, what are you thinking? You because you have a little bit of experience in VR, so it it seems like a no brainer to me. And I do have like very very limited experience with VR, but I know what it's like to get lost playing video games and realize like, oh man, four hours has passed, or not even even just like watching and playing on conventional monitors or in my living room. So I could imagine it would be doubly so in VR. I mean, I've had one, basically one or two VR experiences, one of which was with you, and I could imagine just getting lost in just looking around in the world, much less playing a game. So it seems seems straightforward, uh, but it may tell us a little bit more about virtual reality and how people kind of interact with it. Yeah, so uh, let's, I guess, let's take a step back. Let's talk about virtual reality, where it's at now, um, just in terms of, what's going on with VR headsets uh, and where it's headed, right? I think that's a good place to start. So if you look at most headsets out on the market, um, I think there's a lot of focus on making these things more comfortable. 
you have something like the PlayStation VR, which uh, fits on your head. It it uh, it is clearly designed with comfort in mind, and things like comfort will extend the amount of time that people are able to keep them on their head. Um, you know, there's a, a bunch of different design considerations, like being able to uh, press a button and decouple the lenses from your face, so that way air can reach up and vent into your glasses and eyeballs. Um, you know, these also think about like the bulkiness of equipment from something like, uh, you know, in the 1980s where you had these big bulky headsets. Now they're getting sleeker and uh, more streamlined and less of uh, of a cumbersome thing, right? Like if you think about like the Oculus Quest, this is something that has no um, no tether, really. Uh, and so you, it's just a headset that you throw on your face and it's light enough and it plays games at a certain fidelity that, you know, is kind of unreal. Um, and, uh, so, so if you're thinking about the, the progress of where these things are at right now, these things are fairly comfortable to wear, uh, and are not going to cause discomfort when you're using them. Um, in terms of where it's going to go, I mean, we even talked about a couple of these things on the show before where, you know, you have these patents where they're like super flat up against your eyeballs uh, and there's not this like bulky, heavy weight in front of your face pulling your head down and straining your neck. Um, so we can see that there's progress being made to shorten the distance between your eyeballs and the screen, increase the field of view to make it more immersive, uh, as well as lighten the load on your head to stop with the like you know, strain on your neck. So that's kind of where the technology is at now. Uh, anything to add to that, Blake? Yeah, it's just interesting that I think there's also a lot of partnerships that are going on now with companies trying to make it much more commercial than it ever was before, especially when you mention like the Oculus Quest. I mean, thinking about the fact that you used to have to consider the machine, the basically CPU and machine you were going to buy in addition to the headset to even think about doing something in VR or getting a video game console. But now the fact that you can e you can even access this technology in an untethered format makes it much more realistic in terms of people having it in their homes or people, you know, giving to their kids or whatever it may be. So I think we're going to see it more and more. So the comfort aspect has got to continue to improve. But I know AR is much different here, but I know a lot of companies are also kind of banding together to get the first, you know, popular AR glasses out there through companies like Ray-Ban and others. So I think only more and more we're going to see this become something that we kind of consider to be an everyday household item, um, both for things like games like this paper talks about, but I think for other kind of applied fields and kind of uses as well yeah you bring up another point there blake that i didn't even touch on which is the compatibility issues so there's yeah you were right in in days of old you used to have to pick a pc that was able to run the thing you had to get a headset that was compatible with your pc you had to have the right graphics card and all this stuff to be able to run it and then tether it to the thing and now you can buy the oculus quest for like 400 dollars, and it's a all-in-one package you don't need to worry about anything you just slap it on your head and go um, buy the things that you want to buy, uh, you know, and, and with that said, there's some kind of limitations on, uh, the device, obviously it, Oculus is owned by Facebook. They want to, uh, make sure that you're in their ecosystem. And so there's only certain games on that environment. So it's not as open source, although there's ways around that. And it's, uh, that's a little cumbersome, but in terms of ease of use, it's getting, it's getting there. Right. Um, now I do want to, I do want to kind of take a step back from that and talk about time 
and just the perception of time in general. Um, we had a wonderful conversation with Peter and Gabby Hancock at HFES in 2018. If you haven't uh, listened to that interview yet, go listen to that because we we discuss whether or not time is even real. Um, yeah. And, and <laughs> talk about a, a brain fry there. Uh, so yeah. that's that's uh, some additional listening if you want to go listen to that. But um, time perception is interesting. Uh, there's a, a couple different things that go on with it. Um, in this case, in this study, we are looking at um, time compression, right? And there are certain things that make time compress and time extend uh, based on what's going on, right? I think we talked about, I, I don't remember if this was on the show or if this was some other thing. Maybe it was office hours. There was a study that was done that if you're looking at somebody in the eyeballs, time com- or time extends a little bit uh, when you make eye contact with somebody. So it seems longer than it actually is. Anyway, um, that's beyond the point. The, the point is that time compression and time extension happens in these environments. Uh, and so what's happening in VR is you are misinterpreting the amount of time that is passing in, I'm going to say, the real world. Um or in reality, we can call it in reality, right? Uh, so let's say five minutes passes in reality, and you may think only four minutes has passed in VR. Um, and that is because you are perceiving time to have only moved four minutes in virtual reality, when in reality, it has moved five minutes. And so you are perceiving it as being slower in the virtual environment, but in reality, time outside has compressed i i don't know if i'm doing that justice blake can you help explain it a little bit better yeah so basically what nick is saying and i think you did a good job but ultimately what it is is like consider yourself playing a video game watching something in virtual reality whatever it may be if you think that five minutes has passed what's happening in this time compression effect is in reality five minutes has passed uh, but it passed long before you assumed it had um, or it, in this case, in the study, it's like it's some amount of seconds longer than five minutes, typically a little bit over a minute past five minutes. People are estimating that they were playing a game for five minutes that when in reality they played for longer than that. Um, so that's really the time compression effect that Nick is describing. Uh, you thinking something's happened uh, at a specific interval of time, but in reality, it's already passed you by. Yeah. And there's a couple really great examples of this, right? Something painful um, that you are watching in real time. Um, and I have a story about this, uh, that actually just happened this week. Um, I, (laughs) I made dinner for us Monday, pot pies, uh, and, um, they were scalding hot and I gave my wife one and (laughs) I can't, I don't know where this is going. It spilled over on her foot and burned her foot really badly. And I shouldn't laugh because this is recent oh no um but everything in that span of time that was probably like 10 minutes felt like 20 hours um i'm sure it did (laughs) oh goodness because it was dinner time and and my son was eating and um you know i was trying to clean up messes and make sure my son was okay and make sure my wife was okay a lot going on um and it was an unpleasant experience and it felt like uh the time that was happening there it was uh it took forever, um, and and that's kind of the opposite of compression, I know, but it's just a perception of time thing that went on. So th- um, this can be, let's talk about compression specifically, right? This can be good, 
uh, in a couple different situations. I can think of like a medical procedure that might be unpleasant. Um, you could, you know, like curing burns or something. <laughs> you can you can make that go by quicker uh, by compressing time um, by you know like playing video games while you're getting the procedure done or something to distract you from the unpleasant thing that's being done. Right? Um, yeah. Chemotherapy, something like that. Uh, then there's the opposite spectrum where it could be bad, where you are um, potentially in an environment where maybe you don't want to lose track of time. Like, I don't know, a casino. And you have, <laughs> you know, you you, uh, you are in the casino and you just keep throwing money away um, or, you know, or, or winning money or whatever you do in a keep casino. Keep drinking away, keep like spending way too much time in a dark room with no clocks and no, exactly. no real sunlight. And that's that's part of the trick, right? Like like I yeah. mentioned that ambient light uh going on around you actually plays a big role in in um how you perceive time. And so that could be a a, a situation where uh it could be bad. Um I don't know, Blake, what do you got for for compression, time compression, time perception? So one thing that so you mentioned this a little bit, I do want to call it out a little bit more because I thought it was a it was awesome that it, one it had been studied or like vir- virtual reality and time compression had been studied in the capacity of like shortening something that's painful or something that you don't want to you know focus too much on like chemotherapy because I remember when my stepdad was going through that a couple of years ago, it was kind of a horrible process for him. Like we would be at a place for an hour and he felt like he had been there, you know, an entire day Mm -hmm. just from like the draining aspects and all that kind of stuff. And so something like this, where you're, you're basically using a way to trick your mind with a secondary device. So in this case, case, virtual reality, uh, it's got some interesting effects that can be really, really positive. And that's not like a real application that I would have thought of because it's so tangential to, you know, playing a game and losing track of time in this case. But thinking about like, okay, yeah, in the surgery world or in the medical world, that could be really beneficial. Or even in times where like kids have need to be able to do something that's, you know, a use of their time while their parents are kind of interacting, doing other things they have to do. But I think the negative effects are something that are not talked about enough. I don't mm. I don't know, Nick. <laughs> I played video games most of my life and I didn't realize like the probably the some of the damage I was doing to my, you know, sleep cycle and the amount of time that I would lose track of time. So I, I do think this is one of those phenomenon that it's important to understand a little bit more. Um, and it'll be important like as cause as you've really laid out for everybody, the development of these headsets is only has gotten really awesome since the eighties and it's probably only going to get better from here and more accessible to everybody. So the, the more we kind of understand from the human factors and the design side of what we can do in these games to make it so it doesn't turn into you always losing time or always getting so lost and immersed in something that you like your, the rest of your life or things you have to do passes you by will be a really important aspect. And we don't want to, start causing you know adverse health issues like affecting somebody's sleep or you know making people like have different mood swings and disorders based off of playing too many games in vr well let's let's talk about like what what this time compression can do if you are in a situation where it is impacting your sleep cycle right um you know it's it's heavily researched that if your circadian rhythm is off even by a little bit, it can impact your mood and kind of result in a, in a large number of uh, health 
um, problems, right? Like like mood disorders, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, uh, seasonal affective disorder, even. Um, you know, and and there's uh, there's some research out there that would suggest that there are certain types of people, like night owls, that might have a, a better resistance towards these types of things. But um, even so, uh, you know, everyone has their own circadian rhythm, and and when that is thrown off. Um, some of these major, major mood disorders can can come through. Uh, and if we're talking about time compression and VR, uh, if you're thinking about pushing, like throwing on that headset at 7 p.m. and bedtime's 10 p.m. and now it's 3 a.m. because you've been playing a game in VR or something, you know, it's a huge deal um, because you've just offset your schedule by that much and it's going to take time to recover from that. Uh, and if, if yeah. you're doing it on a regular basis where, oh, the next night you throw it on at 8 p.m. and you're up until 4, it's, it's again, the same thing. You're slowly throwing off that rhythm, and it's going to have uh, lasting health effects. Absolutely, yeah. And trying to recover from something like that, like I, I feel like I've learned more about sleep probably in the past two years from the like just more access to research that's available, kind of like in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. um, through podcasts and whatnot. But trying to catch back up is really, really hard. It's not something you can just like sleep an entire day and it you're just back to normal. It has a really you know long lasting effect, and it can take days to kind of get yourself back to a norm. Uh, and I think in a world too where we're st- where we spend so much more time than we ever have in front of screens, both like mobile working stuff, stuff after work. So it, it's, it's a careful balance for sure. And I think with VR and the potential for it to be as immersive as it can be, it's just going to, it's going to be up to, in a lot of ways, the designers of both games and like applications that are designed for VR for you to interact with to create them in ways that make sure that you as the user are very clear about what's going on in terms of the rest of your life outside, whether it's just like monitoring time or setting windows for when you shouldn't, shouldn't be using the the application or whatever it may be. So it's a, it's a cool set of technology, but I do think it could have severe consequences if not moderated. Yeah. So I want to go back to this article and talk about the key research claim here, right? The, 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 this is a quote. The, this is the first time we can really isolate that it's not just that you're playing a video game or the content of whatever you're seeing. It's really the fact that it is virtual reality versus a conventional screen that contributes to this time compression effect, right? They had them do something that wasn't that engaging. It was a maze. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a goal-based thing. It's not like a, a game where it's engaging. It's just an objective based uh, thing. And I think that's kind of what the rationale that they would use is that's why it's, it's shown that at least in this study that it's VR and not like uh, playing a game or watching content or anything like that. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting claim. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, I guess, validating, <laughs> validating to see it. Um, shown in this study because i mean like it's 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 cool because (laughs) definitely like i said i've experienced it um and uh you know we've we've talked about the impacts that this has on things like mood or even what time compression is do you have any other last uh thoughts opinions on this study here blake i one thing that I, because I'm glad you brought up the the main point here, and that's the fact that the game was very simple, so the immersion aspect was really related to VR. 
because when we first started, I was like, this can't be that insane because I know that from conventional games, I've been, you know, sucked into time um, and, you know, spent too much time playing them or much longer than I intended. But I think the fact that we're seeing this like related directly to VR of something that's very simple, I wonder if if it's kind of the same magnitude if you played like two different or if two people played the same game in different contexts. So, you know traditional versus vr and how that would affect them uh, because i feel like part of it could be some of the immersion is related to the game which then is related to the player's interest and things of that nature yeah thanks thanks for bringing that up because the the kind of last piece that i want to talk about here is the why um why is virtual re- like that's kind of the next step in this research is what aspects yeah. of being in virtual reality make it uh, or, or contribute to that time compression, right? Is it the fact that you are playing a game? Is it that you're doing some goal-based thing? Or is it because um, you have lack a peripheral vision or something like that? So th- that's kind of the next steps in this research is to figure out why. Um, you know, they do say that there is one kind of thing that I've kind of mentioned here tangentially, but it's the body awareness piece, right? Um and uh, I, I'm, I mentioned it in the sense of being aware of your surroundings, your body and the surroundings, the light coming through the windows, that type of thing. But they do mention here, uh, when you look down in virtual reality, you might see nothing where your body is. Um, or you might see a schematic of a body, but you don't feel like you're in your body. Uh, and, you know, does that impact the way that, you know, you perceive time in virtual reality? Or, uh, you know, is it other things like, heartbeat and bodily rhythms uh, to track the passage of time and when you're uh when you're in these environments you have less of a sense of your body in reality versus virtual reality um and and you're missing the pulses of that timekeeping mechanism so there's some interesting suggestions in there curious to see where the research goes from here um yeah i think i think it's really cool i think there's a massive opportunity to based on that one theory right so i kind of want to break it down for listeners real quick so there there are theories out there that say state we may rely on our heartbeat and other bodily rhythms to help our brain track the passage of time so looking down and you see a less vivid image of your body or of a body that you don't identify as yours from your brain's thought process then you may be less likely to even you know keep track of time in a normal way so maybe that's why what's going on here but that that little bit right there, which this is all related to playing games and VR, but it makes me think that there's a lot to be done in neuroscience and understanding how the brain actually works and communicates with the rest of the body um, through studies like this that are focused on like what happens in virtual reality. Because a theory like that, where your body is basically, if it doesn't, if your brain's not seeing your body, it's not as concerned with these different rhythmic pulses that it's usually keeping track of and identifying like you with yourself and so it kind of experiences the world in a different way uh, so I wonder like over time how this will like translate into understanding you know just neurology and your brain in general yeah I do I do want to mention one other thing too right um, and and it's it's fun to talk about time compression and um, playing games and having like the, the weird effects, right? But there is yeah. some real benefit to doing this. This is the, kind of the application piece. What can we take away from a study like this? And I think that's really important to talk about is to, um, you know, what you could do is potentially get insight on how 
to design environments, how to design experiences in virtual reality that potentially um, can minimize some of the heart done, the harm done by um, you know some of the things that we just talked about, right? Like if you do have missing pulses for that timekeeping mechanism, maybe. Uh, there are ways to design around that so you have a better sense of your body and time in virtual uh, environments and experiences um, and and potentially providing that insight to designers of the of these experiences so that way uh, they are less harmful on the body the human body in the long term I think that's you know kind of one really interesting application here that um, that we almost got away from, but I'm glad we kind of mentioned it because it is like, this is a fun topic. Um, time compression. It, it's, it's like one of those things you don't realize the harmful effects of until it's happened. Um, and, uh, you know, th there, there are real world consequences here and, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully this will provide insight into that type of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are really great points. And I think the more that we're able to kind of design around Issues like this or phenomena that we learn about like this that are related to VR, the better off people are going to be able to enjoy the experience and not be sucked into a lot of the negative consequences behind it. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, uh, thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at UC Santa Cruz for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links uh, on our blog and our Slack and our Discord whenever we find them. So go join us over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break uh, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. All right. As always, huge thank you to our patrons and especially our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp, because patrons like you keep the show running uh, and keep the lights on over here at Human Factors cast. Thank you so much for your continued support. Um, go check out Patreon. We got always like I like the uh, like the ad always says <laughs> rewards are always changing. We even got some uh, other stuff up there like a show sponsor role. So if you're interested in something like that, um, go check that out. Patrons like uh, patrons are actually what keep the show on. I don't know if we've said that, but seriously, like now you know. Look at the quality of us streaming video now. It's it's you've mentioned it in the pre-show, Blake. It's come a long way, and it's all because of our patrons. All right, let's go ahead and switch gears and get to this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from this week. It's Reddit. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. This could be anything uh, related to the field of human factors, uh, as long as it's uh, good enough for um, Blake and I to sit here and talk about and answer, and we have stuff to talk about. Anyway, that, that's a long-winded <laughs> thing. It's anywhere, anywhere. 
It could be anywhere. Uh, all right, so let's go ahead and uh, we have three today, and we're gonna we're gonna t- we talked about this in the pre-show a little bit. We're gonna tell a story today. We're gonna talk uh, <laughs> about this story of Joe Schmo who is uh, going through. Um, Early career development. Let's let's talk about it that way. All right. So we have three here. This one, this first one here is from Left Noob Enthusiast on the user experience subreddit. I was interviewed for a job interview I think I'm not qualified for. Could that be a mistake? Uh, they go on to write, hello there. I am a new grad, will be graduating this year, and had cold mailed a product manager at a tech company for an entry-level product designer job. To my surprise, he sent me a design challenge link. However, after clicking on the link, they were looking for someone with four years of experience. I had clearly mentioned I had no corporate experience, but I took my chance and I worked on the design challenge and submitted it. Now, he said he wanted to take it forward and invited me for an interview. The design challenge clearly mentioned they were looking for someone with four years experience, and obviously I don't have that. So what's happening here? Does he just not notice that I was a new grad, or did he not? Did he want to give me a chance before rejecting me? Blake, what do you think what's going on in this situation? Have you ever had anything like this happen to you? Yes, I absolutely have. And th- I think this is one of those times where it's probably a good time to remind people that you you are – is as good as you as other people think you are so definitely take a step back here because i think the the connotation you're putting on yourself is like i'm i've read out of grad school i'm too new at this i don't know what i'm doing but obviously somebody's trying to give you a chance in some way now whether they you know totally weren't paying attention needed to fill the role that badly maybe but it sounds like to me that although you think you're not in the right place, maybe you are. It could have been the way you presented yourself in whatever precursor, because you said there was like a cold email or cold call. So maybe it was how you presented yourself in an email. Maybe they looked you up on LinkedIn or they looked at the program that you're from and were like, hey, maybe this is worth a shot. Um, but regardless, it, it sounds like that after all, you really are in the right place. Because if even if you... One thing to consider for like hiring managers and and job postings that you see, yes, they put you know amount of experience they want on there. But if you are able to get an interview without that experience, just show off what you can do because sometimes they'll they'll put a larger tier of or a lar- or whatever a higher limit in terms of experience or job qualifications than they actually need, which is not a great practice. But you can still get the interview and have the conversation. Um, but I don't know. I think that this is not somebody not noticing something and just looking to reject you. I think this person likely saw potential in you through one of the actions that you did, whether it's the email or the, the first design challenge that you mentioned here. And they actually wanted to give you a chance. I hope that's the case. But Nick, what are you seeing here? Have you kind of put, been in this situation yourself? I've not necessarily been in the situation this myself. Um, we'll talk about imposter syndrome a little later. But I think I, I think what's happening here is the fact that uh, the bad practice of, of saying four years, right? Entry-level job, four years experience, uh, $15 an hour, you know, that type of thing. Um, I think the four years probably came from um, some writer. And if it's a large tech company, um, they say it's a tech company. They don't disclose the size. If it's a large tech company, chances are the person who needs the hire is not the person that's writing the qualifications for the job. Uh, Usually they farm those out to HR or marketing or something like that, where they will 
put in things that they find elsewhere on the internet. At least this is my understanding, right? So they'll see like, oh, this position typically needs someone with this many years of experience. And if it's a tech company, they're going to say that everywhere. They're going to say it, you know, in the in the job posting, they're going to say it everywhere. I'm, I tend to agree with you, Blake. If you've got the interview, take it. Um, kind of believe in yourself until, uh, you know, it does, it happens or doesn't happen. The worst you can do is, um, you know, not be honest with them though. I mean, like just tell them like, Hey, you know, uh, maybe, maybe omit the truth. Maybe don't mention the fact that you have less than four years experience here, but don't call it out either. Don't, I don't know. I I feel like I'm telling you to lie. Don't lie, but don't tell them that, you know, (laughs) you missed it because it's on them at this point. If they haven't noticed, it's on them. That's how I feel about it. Uh, And that might not be the right way to go about it. (laughs) But well, I I think you're right, though. I mean, if they've gotten this far, I guess my opinion is that that the amount of experience they had maybe doesn't even matter that much. And that if, if that should be coming up in the interview or when they look at your resume anyway. So, I mean, definitely, like Nick said, don't lie about it. But at the end of the day, I think that you've already gotten past the, like, having to be worried about how many right. years of experience you have. Honestly, honestly, that comes from the submission of a resume, right? Like, that's the check. Um, they look at your work experience and determine whether or not it's four years or equivalent and say, okay, you're in to the next round, right? That's kind of the check that I would imagine that four-year check is at anyway. Um, so, I don't know. Go for it. Do it. You you got this. You we coldly be- you cold mailed them. Go after it. We believe in you. Um. All right. Uh, <laughs> we should get into the next one here. So again, we're telling a story here about this. Let's pretend it's the same person. Um. Although this one was written by Gom Soup on the user experience subreddit. So, uh, this next one here, just pretend it's the same person. Now they've been working at this company for a while. They say, is it really that bad to stay at the same company for more than two years? They must really like it there. Um, they go into right. I'm a UI UX designer at a medical device company in the United States. And I've worked here for about eight months. I graduated last year and this is my first full-time job. Since it's a medical device company, everything is moving extremely slow, similar to the defense industry. Because of that, people stay at this company for a long duration. The team I'm in is getting backstabbed pretty often, but I don't think one of those will become a death blow that will get me fired. Hopefully. Since all jobs are requiring at least three to five years of experience, I'm thinking about staying at the company for three to five years and move to a different company at a medium or senior level. Thing is, I'm seeing a lot of posts saying that employees that stay at the same company for more than two years are valued less. Is it really that bad to stay at the same company for more than two years in the industry? Blake? This is really interesting of a post. So I I don't know where the validity of this it's it, you're devalued if you stayed somewhere for two more than two years is uh, in the human factors or UX industry. I don't really know where that's coming from. Uh, I do. I as long as you do, then you can go through it. But in it just doesn't seem like from my perspective the way this is written that it's worth just sticking three to five years out. Because listen, the way that I perceive this stuff is if you're not feeling like you're either happy growing enjoying the process or learning a lot then maybe you don't need to be at a company whether it's you know seven years down the line or it's one year in so i don't really know about this whole 
deal of just staying so that it looks like you stayed somewhere for a specific amount of time. So then you can go apply for other jobs. Cause that's like having a plan B and just staying executing plan A until you're ready for plan B. And I just think you might as well go and do the other thing you want to do because like the, the, the post before this, I mean, you could get lucky and get a job offer for something with a lot less experience, or you could spend a lot of time networking instead of waiting for three to five years and build build your way into the next job that you want to do, or be doing stuff on like on your nights and weekends to help you get a different job. So I, I just don't really know that if you're feeling this way and you're not really excited about what you're doing and you're kind of worried about the longevity at the company as it is, uh, mentioning like a potential death blow to get you fired maybe it's just time to consider looking at other places and networking to see what else you could do um and not really worrying too much about the three to five year cap okay let me let me address this two years thing i think the two years is being conflated i don't think people get devalued for staying less than two years right there's there's certainly a generational shift um i would say those of older generations I'll be polite there. Uh, typically value things like loyalty to a company, right? And loyalty is rewarded. However, I feel like the younger generations have figured out how to quote unquote hack the system. I think the two years comes from the, I guess, socially accepted amount of time before moving on to another company uh, without it looking like you're, you're just jumping from company to company. People in early careers do this to increase their salary. Um, and I think that's where this two years comes from. You stay with a company for two years, you jump ship to another company, get a huge bump in salary, um, and then do the same thing another two years later, another huge increase in salary, and the cycle goes on and on. Um, and so I think, you know, at some point there's going to be a, you're, you're, <laughs> I'm going to say it, you're, you're too old to get a job at a certain company because they want somebody with, you know, fresh out of school or something that's less yep. expensive or something. So it's it's a trade-off, I feel like, uh, in terms of generational to get to a place where you will either have work lined up for a while or, um, you know, you have a steady job. It, it's it's weird. Um, I, so that's, that's my opinion on where that two years has come from. Um, I personally value loyalty. I, I think, um, you know, I, if I were in charge of the payroll, I would pay people, you know, a substantial boost for being there for a long time because, uh, that's, that means that they're going to keep working for me as long as their work is good. Right. Um, and so, is it really that bad to stay at the company for more than two years? Absolutely not. Um, I think it kind of just fits, uh, or it, it depends on, damn it, I did the thing. <sighs> we need like an it depends buzzer over here. Um, yeah, like the bleep button. Right. Uh, it, it does depend, though, on your situation, right? We had a, we had a question a couple weeks ago about um, a mother who uh, was asking about jumping from contract to contract and whether having children impacted that. And if you have children, having a stable job, a stable income might be more valuable to you than, let's say, a, a 10 to 20 percent increase in salary. That 10 to 20 percent increase in salary might also be very helpful to somebody who has a family and mouths to feed. So it can be kind of tempting. Um, Absolutely. 
but it's like, do you take that risk? There's a lot of factors involved. So I wouldn't like necessarily harp on anybody for jumping ship after two years. And I say jumping ship, but really it's leaving a company. If, as long as you do it on good terms, then I don't see any issues here. Um, I don't know. I it's It's a complex question. And I think there's a lot of conflation going on there with um, devaluing somebody after two years. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, so anyway, we're, we're, we're telling the story of this person, Joe Schmo, who has now graduated college, gone to the first job, uh, and is thinking about jumping ship. So let's ask, let's answer the question, uh, moving from one question, one company to another imposter syndrome, question mark. This one's from why wait so overpriced, uh, on the user experience subreddit. Um, and so they say, so I'm a level one at my current company I'm working at, but I've been leading projects on my own, more or less. So I'm potentially moving out to a similar size company with a more established design culture and cross-functional relationships with user experience. But it'll be more of a mid-level role with an entirely new domain I'll have to grasp. During my interview, I think I overload myself a bit on how I deal with certain situations and work with PMs and engineers. But maybe that's just imposter syndrome. I know my potential manager will have tons of resources for me. And I mentioned imposter syndrome to him during my one-on-one interview. Any tips for me when I start the new company? Blake. This, I So this all sounds normal <laughs> for sure because I, it's, it's so funny to me. So when you go through the interview process, you try to – you try to be somewhere in the middle, but you tend to always oversell yourself because you know, like when a question get, gets asked, you know what the right answer is. So you'll lean into that. Like that's that's pretty natural here. So overselling yourself in an interview is one thing. But I, at the, at the reality of that is the person you're talking to has to be able to weigh like, okay, am I? how much am I trusting all of this this person is saying? And they have to weigh how much they expect you to be able to do on your own. Um, but they'll still need to like help you through the company. So ultimately, because you're starting something completely new in a different style of role um, with a new domain, I mean, there is going to be enough kind of learning curve uptime for you to kind of get a handle on where where you're at in reality. But if you already have been doing a lot of like manage, management and dealing with different cross-functional teams outside of a company with a really defined like design culture... I think you're going to find it a good bit easier to f- insert yourself into a new culture that has design processes that are put in place, and you'll be able to learn a whole lot just from being in a new spot. Um, and if you were upfront about somebody in a one-on-one interview, like before you even got the job, that you there are imposter syndrome issues. That's awesome because it shows a good bit of vulnerability. So they, I don't. From my perspective, if that was you and me in an interview, I would have a lot more trust than I did when you first walked into the interview, just because you were able to tell me exactly how you're feeling. So I think that there's probably a a nice careful balance of feeling like you're going to a brand new role, you're kind of nervous about it, you haven't gone through that proof of concept period where you have to perform or whatever and see what you're really made of, but I think that's natural going in into any brand new role. Um, and I would just do- I wouldn't doubt your prior experience, and then kind of think about retrospectively what you would improve from your prior job t- into a new role, and see how you can grow into that at this new place. Yeah, uh, my answer is going to be fairly simple here. Um, I think imposter syndrome is a terrible disease, uh, and 
needs to be eradicated. But I also feel like, look, if you are going to, if, if you're interviewing with a company that, in your words, have established uh, a, a more established design culture, cross-functional relationships with UX, chances are they know what they're doing when they're hiring people. Um, and so I would look at the fact that the company has this great design culture, great cross-functional relationship uh, with other groups and say, okay, well, they know what they're doing if they were to hire me, which would then backhandedly give me faith in myself if they hired me. So what I'm saying here is they're hiring you for a reason, and uh, it's it's normal to feel imposter syndrome, but if they didn't think that you couldn't do the job, they wouldn't have hired you, um, and that's ultimately what it comes down to. So, you know, there's there's a certain understanding that any job that you pick up, you're going to have a learning curve where you're learning um, a new domain. Potentially, it, it could be the same domain, but there's still nuances to every job that you have to learn. And it's not just a walk in and uh, lead the show. You know, it's going to be walk in, learn the culture, learn the product, learn the user, and then act on those. And, you know, it might take you a month, two months to get up to speed. But once you're there, you're there. And again, they won't hire you unless they think you can do it. And if you can't do it, then they'll fire you. And that's it. That's the simplicity of it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, either way, it's going to be a good learning experience. Um, it, and I think a lot of people get caught in their heads about that they don't know what they're doing. And it's easy to do because we work, I think, like, especially in the human factors world, it, we work in a lot of complex domains where yeah. just learning a domain seems insane. Uh, much less yeah. doing the job. I agree. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into one more thing? It's pretty self-explanatory. We don't have a little fun thing for this yet. I don't know if we will, but we have one more thing. Blake, what's your one more thing? One more thing, Nick. This resource that I came across on the internet um, while I was taking a Google ML machine learning course um, is, I forget what it's exactly called, but uh, it's called People Plus AI, the guidebook, and it's a basically a guidebook of design patterns from Google about how to implement AI or think about AI in terms of when you're designing new software, where it would be useful, kind of like material design, but for thinking about AI systems. Uh, so it's just one of those things I wanted to throw out there to make people aware of, because I'm sure a lot of people have seen it before, but it was something I stumbled across by accident. And I thought that the much like material design, the value it brings to how I think about you know, the way when AI would be beneficial to think about in terms of pieces of software, or app, application development, it just provides a nice scaffolding. Uh, so it is just something I wanted to throw out there. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So this is a this is how people and AI interact together. I'm looking at it now. It's pretty cool, right? It gives you um, this is actually kind of a neat little web interface for this too, right? It, it kind of gives you a couple different entry points, right? Like you could just get started or, um, you know, it breaks it down by uh, chapters and it's actually, um, it's pretty neat. I'm, I'm looking at it now for the first time and I'm pretty uh, excited to jump into this, Blake. So thank you for bringing this up. And like I said, we'll put a link to this um, down in the show notes. Anything else, people? People AI guidebook? I think that's it. That's all I got for this okay. one more thing this week, Nick. All right. For me, um, man, I got to say, uh, getting an apartment is harder than getting a PlayStation 5. Um, I 
I don't know if you've tried to get a PlayStation 5 yet. I tried today, and it was not successful. <laughs> yes, right? It's hard. So yeah. um, the housing market, uh, Aaron and I actually talked about this last week on our post show. Uh, housing market right now is kind of nuts. It's very competitive. Um, we're, we're talking with a uh, real estate agent right now who had a um, who had a client jump off the plane, go to a house, and had to make a decision that day before um you know a certain time i think it was 4 p.m or something and they had eight minutes to spare when they wrote the Whew. offer they got off the plane saw the house made an offer same day because the market is insane right now yeah. now uh that is actually being carried over to places like apartments we're looking for um you know specific parameters and uh you know so that way i can do the show and um have an office basically while we house hunt in this new area that I'm not mentioning yet. Um, so <laughs> uh, another part of the country. How about that? Uh, and so um, w- finding a place with these specific parameters was difficult enough when we visited. And then now we have to camp. And we have to camp out on the website. So I had my, my five different tabs open with the different places that we were considering. And oh, some rank higher than others. And we were com- there were compromises we were willing to make on some, but not others. And so it's like I had all these windows open. And like every couple hours I'd refresh. And then, you know, one would pop up. And we were like, oh, yes, that's it. And then uh, it'd be gone like in 20 minutes. And it's like it's kind of oh, insane. Wow. Because I think the, the attributes that we're looking for, um, certain number of bedrooms, certain number of baths with um, – certain attributes like a pantry or washer dryer and you know those types of things right those attributes are more desirable and so they're more competitive and so i'm sitting here looking at like the five uh different tabs you know every hour just refresh 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 just making sure that it's there and i'm having a harder time than i have finding a playstation 5 um you know because at least those are up and available and you can get on it i still haven't got one but um but I did get an apartment, so I guess maybe it's not as hard as a PlayStation 5. I don't know. We have one kind of like a, a bare minimum that we've accepted. We're willing to eat the application fee if another one, better one, comes available. Anyway. Nice. Well, yeah. That's good. At least you got prospects, that, and the PS5 is still you know hiding for everybody. Yeah. Well, we'll get there. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, and then uh, I'll just say one more thing. I guess, no. You know what? That Two was, more things? No, it's, it's one more thing. I'm going to leave it at that. Maybe I'll say this one next week. All right, so that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. Have you ever been in VR? Do you have time dilation when you go in there? Let us know. Uh, you can hang out with us on our Slack or Discord or get to us at any of our social channels. You can visit our official website. Um, and if you uh, are so inclined, feel free to reach out to us about joining the Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. Um, if you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. Uh, you can leave us a five-star review on your podcast medium of choice if they allow you to do it. If they don't, you can tell your friends about us. That always helps the show grow. And uh, if you have the financial means, you can always consider supporting us on Patreon. It allows the team to grow. It allows us to do more fancier things with more fancier bells and whistles. And we do give back to you for doing that. So, um, you know, think about it. And as always, uh, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I'm going to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about playing games in virtual reality? If you guys want to debate whether time is real or not, you can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch Tuesdays now at 1 p.m. 
office Pacific time for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. 